0: John chapter number 11, it's been a good day to be in the house of the Lord, and uh, I appreciate the Dumpling Valley trio this morning, that was a blessing, and uh, we enjoyed having them with us, always enjoy that, you pray for them as they travel, and uh, what a blessing that is. John chapter number 11, uh, we're not going to read the entirety of this chapter, we're not even going to read most of it, I think most of us that are students of the Bible, we probably have somewhat of an idea of where we're at when we approach John chapter number 11, we know this uh chapter deals uh, largely with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Uh, But I want us to notice tonight the first five verses, and I want to preach to you a little bit uh, along a vein of thought that I hope will be an encouragement to you. John chapter number 11, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in this place. Pray that you'd take the holy and Aaron inspired and preserved word of God and that You'd use it in our hearts and minds. Lord, it's been a good day today, and for that we're mindful to give You praise and honor and glory. Lord, for it's only been because of You that there's been anything about this day, Lord, that has been glorious, that has been wonderful, that has been an encouragement. Left under our own devices, we would have made a mess of all of it. But Lord, You and Your faithfulness have brought us through and wrought great things in our hearts and in our midst. And we just want to thank You for what You have done. But Lord, we turn our attention now to this present hour, this present moment, and this present opportunity to hear the Word of God, afresh and anew, and respond in obedience to it. Help us to not allow this moment to pass us without us taking this opportunity. And we'll be sure to thank you for what takes place. Now, Lord, we thank you for loving us. Thank you for being such a wonderful God. We love you, Lord, and we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, John chapter number 11 is is comprised almost entirely of the story of the raising of Lazarus from... The grave from the tomb. No doubt when we even said John chapter number eleven, you sitting there thinking, Oh, it's going to be a loose him and let him go uh, sermon, amen. And of course you might I might have picked up on that because you want me to loose you and let you go, amen. Uh, And you probably thought we're gonna hear him as he stands outside the tomb and cries out, Lazarus, come forth. But and with the Lord's help, we may get there at some point. But when I read John chapter number eleven, I find that the story does not begin there at the tomb. The story begins long before you ever get to the tomb. Uh, How many of you know this to be true, that sometimes the biggest things that God has done in your life didn't begin at that moment of deliverance, but they began long before that with a disturbing moment. Uh, You can see him there come walking out of that tomb. Man, what a glorious sight that is. But can I remind you that for four days before there was ever that moment, there were moments of grief, Moments of heartache, moments of torment, and moments of confusion and questioning. And when we approach John chapter number 11, I guess here's how I'd describe it. This is a chapter of big problems. In fact, there's not a single small problem in this chapter. And it's not just one problem. Now, all of these problems are prompted by the death, the sickness, and then death of Lazarus. But it's not just that. I mean, there's all kinds of problems that come into play with Lazarus' sickness. Existential questions about God and His mercy and His compassion and His providence and His watch care and His faithfulness. I'm saying this, when Lazarus got sick, it threw their whole world into a tailspin. And all of a sudden, it was not just this singular problem, but there's all these problems that crop up from it. Can I say this? We have a God that solves big problems. He's not confined to the small problem. Uh, now, there there might be some things that you could bring to me, and I could try to fix, and I could try to help, and I could try to solve, and I could try to save. But it wouldn't take long, man. You'd be you'd be out of my debts. I'd have to say you're gonna have to go somebody that can help you more than I can. I'm glad there's never a moment we go to the Lord when He says, "I'm sorry, your problem is too big." There's never a problem that we approach and, and bring to the Lord, approach Him with, and He has to say, I'm sorry, I'm out of my depth. There's no problem too big for God. And when we read John chapter 11, what we find is God answering and solving and speaking to big problem after big problem after big problem. In fact, as I read through it, I find that there's about five, you could probably find a lot more than that, but about five different big problems that take place in this passage and the Lord doesn't run from them. Some folks run from their problems, man. Things go sideways. They're looking for an exit strategy. They're looking for an escape hatch. God doesn't run from big problems. He runs to big problems. He doesn't hide from them. He helps them. He doesn't he uh, listen. He doesn't shy away. Uh, instead, he leans into them and uses them as opportunities to display his majesty, his wisdom. And his power. And so as we walk through this chapter, and I don't know, tonight may be the only time we preach on it, but we certainly could preach a lot more out of this chapter uh, on these problems, one right after another. But I just tonight want to take a moment and look at the first of these big problems. I'm talking about deep questions. I'm talking about things that keep you up at night, and it's the problem that revolves around the very reality that Lazarus became sick in the first place. There's several times in this passage where we are reminded of the Lord's love for Lazarus. But probably the most noticeable is the uh, imploring of his sisters, Mary and Martha, when they send word to the Lord Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Look with me at verse number three. I think we could sum up the the, the theme of this message tonight in what they said. His sisters sent unto him, sent unto Jesus, saying this. Now, it's interesting. They didn't say, Lord, come quick." They didn't say, Lord, come save us. They didn't say, Lord, come help us. They didn't say, Lord, send a blessing or send a miracle. Uh, they didn't even say like the uh, like the uh, Roman legionnaire did. They didn't even come and, and say, now, Lord, you don't even have to come to our house, but just speak the word. No, instead, all they said is this, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. This is not a question. This is not an examination. It's an imperative statement of fact. And they merely drop it in the lap and in the ears of the Lord Jesus. Now, what do they mean by this? And I don't want to get ahead of my message before I preach it, but can I just go ahead and give you the title of my message tonight? Uh, The God of big problems, and the first problem that he faces is this, the problem of love's allowance. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it's very obvious what they're saying when they send word. Lord, you love us. But if you love us, how could you let this happen to us? I'll tell you, one of the great questions of the human experience is this question. If there is a loving God, why does He allow the things to happen that take place? Now, I can go ahead and go. I mean, listen, we we could go to a college campus and stand toe-to-toe with uh, some shallow-headed philosophy professor. and We could have the back and forth, and I could explain how the problems that exist in this world are the manifestation of sin's curse upon this realm and, and God's creation. And that's true, by the way. I could talk about the fact that God has a desire to uh, allow men to live a life far above and far better than what they can ever experience through their own strength and energy and how it's because men refuse to come to God and refuse to trust in Him and refuse to believe His Word that so much sorrow and heartache takes place. And by the way, that would be true. What are you going to say to Mary and Martha when you roll up to their house? These are not people that deny the Lord. These are not people that rebel against God. These are not people that are shaking their fist in defiance or living in willful, blind ignorance of the reality of God. Hey, these are people that know the Lord and love the Lord, and yet crisis enters into their world just the same. How do we answer this problem of what love allows? And I'm going to go ahead and I'll just tell you tonight, there's probably some questions that you've got that I won't answer. But I'm hoping the question that I do answer will be good enough to take up the slack for all those questions. You ain't going to get all your questions answered. Not on this side of glory. There's going to be things that happen in your life that you will never understand. There's going to be things happen to you that you'll never get an explanation. Not on this side of glory. Hey, as far as we know, Job never knew what that conversation was in heaven. Not until he got to heaven did he find out. You and I know about it before we get to chapter 3. Job, he don't know nothing about it. There are some things you may not get an answer to. You're going to have to learn that the answers available to you far outweigh the answers that uh, that escape you. Uh, The answers that you have are far more important than the answers that elude you. And we find when we come to this passage, though there are some questions about what love allows that we cannot answer, we find that God gives us enough to help us through based on what we can know. I want you to notice there's five truths here tonight, and I'm just very quickly going to walk through. Probably won't be a long message. It will be now, that I've said that. Notice with me verse number one. The Bible says this, Now a certain man was sick. Now Luke liked to use that language, a certain man, a certain man. Luke was a doctor after all, and he had a medical mind, and he had an exacting mind. And so he'd often say, not just some man, not just a man, but there was a certain man. And he tells us who this man is. His name was Lazarus. Now, if you've been reading through the Gospel of John, you've already been introduced to his sisters, Mary and Martha. But here the focus is on him as opposed to them. It says there was a man, a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, it's easy to just read that and it sounds benign. But let me say that in verse number one, what we really have here is a word of crisis tragedy had struck this little family. We do not know many things about this family. We don't know the ages of the individuals in it. We don't know the uh, various gaps in ages that existed. We don't know, for instance, if uh, all of the people in the home are working or what the dynamic is uh, of that social hierarchy. There's many things that we don't know about their responsibilities. But we do know a few things about them. We know this is a group of people, siblings, uh, two sisters and a brother. We know that they love the Lord. And we know that much dependence upon Lazarus being present in the home to be able to help and share the burdens that were there. All of a sudden, here, crisis befalls them. Notice two things here. One, notice the reality of this crisis. This is not a small thing. I wish I could tell you when you got born again that you was only ever going to have small problems after that. But do you know that sometimes Christians get sick? Sometimes they get cancer. Sometimes they lose kids. Sometimes they fall into financial hardship. Hey, sometimes people that love the Lord and to a degree love each other, sometimes their marriage shakes apart. I'm saying this, sometimes crisis, there's a tendency when you ain't in the crisis to imagine uh, that that crisis could never touch your life. But do you know that everybody's thinking that till they wind up right smack in the middle of a crisis? You say, now, preacher, I make smart decisions. I I make good decisions with my life. We love the Lord. We serve the Lord. We're in church. We try to honor God with our marriage. We try to make wise decisions with our finances. We're raising our kids for the Lord. We're doing everything right. And even so, can I remind you that still things like sickness and tragedy can befall even you. I hope you don't need this message tonight. I mean that. But sooner or later, you're going to need it. Because crisis comes to all of us. I see the reality of this crisis. Then I notice the recipients of it. Uh, Luke goes out of his way, to, or John goes out of his way to remind us who this family is. And and John tells us that this is a group of people that knew the Lord. And can I say this? They are believers. Did you know that crisis and tragedy even comes to the child of God? It even comes to those that are given their everything to Christ. Uh, This is a group of people who are familiar with the Lord. They know who He is. He has stayed at their home. I don't want to say too much about it. We'll say a word about it in verse number 2 because John expounds and expands upon this idea of who this family is. But can I just remind you, it ain't just bad folks that bad things happen to it's It's not just unfaithful people that bad things happen to, hey, even people that know and love the Lord. Everything's going fine in their lives through our knowledge. We learn about this couple back in in chapter number ten. They're welcoming the Lord into their home, but uh in Luke chapter ten, but here in our text, we find that tragedy has befallen them. We see a word of crisis in verse number one. Now I want you to notice verse number two. The Bible says this: John tells us who exactly it was. Uh, this Mary it says, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now this is interesting that John discloses this at this moment because actually these events do not take place in the record that John gives us until the very next chapter. But Luke tells us, and there's about three or four occasions that we're introduced to this family in the Gospels. Luke tells us about the earliest occasion when we are introduced to who these people are. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10 for a moment. Luke chapter number 10. You ain't shouting me down anyway, so we got time to preach tonight. Luke chapter number 10. And look down at verse number 38. Some of y'all are going to start shouting now. You mean He'll let us out if we amen Him? Amen, preacher! Luke chapter number 10. Look with me at verse number 38. This is the first introduction we have to this family. The Bible says this, Now came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bitter, therefore, that she helped me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Preacher, what does that reveal to us? John goes out of his way to remind us who these individuals are. We could make three statements about this family. Let me say, number one, that this is a family that welcomed the Lord. These are a group of people that wanted the Lord in their lives. This is a group of people that desired for him to be close. They desired fellowship. Not only that, but this is a family that worked for the Lord. We find that Martha in this passage actually gets chided by the Lord. By the way, the Lord's not upset about what she is doing. The Lord is upset about what she is dismissing. God's not upset that she's serving. God is upset that she is neglecting Christ. Can I say this? God wants us to serve God wants us to serve Him. Hey, even at ladies' tea, God wants us to serve Him. God wants us to, to serve Him, but not at the expense of our own spiritual nourishment either. Say so what are you saying, preacher? I'm saying everything in balance. But these were a group of people that they were working for the Lord. They wanted the Lord in their home. They were serving the Lord. But then we find here in Luke chapter number 10, where is, is Mary at? She's seated at the feet of Jesus. She is worshiping the Lord. She is listening to His Word. Another occasion in which we will be introduced to Mary is when she comes and as John tells us in his Gospel, uh, takes an alabaster box and breaks it and anoints the feet of Jesus with her hair. Uh, we're told of another time in uh, John chapter number 12 when there's a dinner at their house and Martha is serving, but Mary is once again at his feet. In other words, uh, this family knew not only how to welcome the Lord, but this family knew how to work for the Lord, and this family knew how to worship the Lord. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying they got it all together. that, to me, makes verse number 2 a word of confusion. John injects into verse number 2 this biographical note. Now, why would he do that? Anybody that's reading John's gospel could probably draw a line between this little family and this event that's taking place here. Probably even without John saying this, we wouldn't say, now which Mary was it? Now which Martha was it? Now which Lazarus was that? We'd already know it from the other gospel records, and we'd even know it from John's gospel. So why does the Holy Ghost go out of his way? Could it be he's trying to emphasize the fact that this is a family that's got it all together? I wish I could tell you that if you serve God, problems will never befall you. But the truth of the matter is, even people that give their whole heart and life to Christ, sometimes tragedy befalls them. Sometimes things happen beyond their control, things that happen beyond their comprehension. And the truth of the matter is, and there's been moments, certainly not as I'm sure some people have tasted in this room, but there's been moments that me and my family have tasted sorrow. There's probably been times in your life when you was doing everything best you knew how to do it, trying to love the Lord and live for the Lord, and still problems befell. And you might not want to admit it in decent company, but somewhere in the depths of your heart you thought yourself, does He really love me? If He does, then why? If He does, then How? If he does, then what is he doing in my life? I see a word of crisis here and I see a word of confusion here. Uh, Undoubtedly, they didn't understand why this had happened. You know what this led to? Verse number three. Therefore, his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. (laughs) This is a fascinating statement to me. It's fascinating for a myriad reasons. One of the reasons it's fascinating is because I have children. And when you have children, sometimes, and by the way, this is true for pastoring too, but you experience it. If you've never pastored, you'll, and you've had, you'll at least know that sometimes your kids will walk up to you and they won't ask you for anything. They'll just say, here dad, here's a problem. They'll come up and say, Bubba fell and he's bleeding. <laughs> they don't come up and say, hey, you need to go help him. Hey, something happened. They'll come up and say, this is broken. Like it just mysteriously broke. The forces of gravity became too much for it. It just shattered into a million pieces. And there's a lot of what we would call implicit statements when you're parenting. Now, I, and let's be honest. I mean, as parents, we do the same thing. We'll look at them and say, what are you, stupid? <laughs> you say, preacher, what are those? Well, here's what we're doing. oftentimes, not only is it a, a linguistic, a grammar way of implying something, but there is something also emotional behind it. It's a way of taking and dropping something into someone's lap and implying that somehow they have dropped the ball in their watch over. Whenever Mary and Martha send this word, uh, I don't think that they are, are trying to leave anything to the imagination, but I think they understand that what is meant by this is, Lord, this happened. You messed up. Something must be done to rectify this situation. You need to come here, you need to solve it, or you need to do something about it, because, Lord, it does not make sense to us that Lazarus could be sick when you say that you love him. Notice the two things that they sort of invoked in this statement. I'm going to call verse 3 this a word of criticism. They don't say it outright. Very often, few of us would be willing to. But they're, they're willing to hint around it. They're willing to send this word out. They're willing to sort of uh, put the feelers out and let the Lord know that they are displeased with what he has allowed to take place. And notice in doing it, they did two things. One, they invoked his lordship. They said, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now, isn't that interesting language? Now, of course, it was common for his followers to call him Lord. But you would even imagine in such an intimate message as being relayed like this, that it would have been unnecessary for them to say this. They're not standing face to face, but rather they have sent some type of message, either through correspondence or through some kind of messenger. But they make sure that he knows that they've called him Lord. It's almost like this. They're invoking his lordship and saying, now, Lord, you're our master. You're the one we're looking to. You promised you'd take care of us. You promised you'd watch over us. You promised us if we believed in you and trusted in you that everything would be better in our life, that everything would be okay. You know what we have a tendency to do when things go sideways? All of a sudden, it's funny, when things is going well, we ain't too interested in God being God. But when things go sideways, all of a sudden we remember who God is. Because we want to shake our fist at him and say, now Lord, why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you taking care of this? Why aren't you resolving this? Can I remind you of this? Hey, he's Lord when things are good. And he's Lord when things are bad. If we're willing, if if we would come to him and be so bold and say, now, God, how could you allow this to happen? I think we ought to back that up with treating him like he's God the rest of the time as well. They invoked his lordship. They said, now, Lord, we've trusted in you. We've committed ourselves to you. We've put ourselves in your care. How, Lord, could you allow this to happen? They invoked his lordship. Now, Lord, if you're really God... (laughs) You won't allow this to happen. Isn't it funny how our mind thinks? I'm trying to get past this, but I just can't move from it. Isn't it funny how our mind thinks? He's only God if he's doing things in the way that we expect him to. I tell you, he don't have to do things the way you think he will to be God. He's God whether he makes sense to you or not. The onus is not on him to prove himself divine unto you. The onus is on you to put your faith in him that he is who he said he is. They said, now, Lord, how could you allow this to happen? They invoked his lordship. And then they said this, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now, something I'm going to say to the credit of Mary and Martha here, they didn't question his love, but they did sort of criticize Now, you've heard me say this before, and I stand by this in a certain context. It's okay to question the Lord, but we shouldn't criticize the Lord. And typically speaking, that's true. That'd be a better path would be to say, now, Lord, uh, you know, I'm not mad at you, but I'm just asking you, why is this taking place in my life? Mary and Martha, they flip it around, but there is a certain nobility in it. Undoubtedly, they mean this as an accusatory statement. But still even in the midst of it, you know what they recognize? We can't figure it out, but we know that he loves us. What is implied here is if you love us the way that you say you love us, you wouldn't allow this to happen in the first place. They're criticizing maybe not the presence of his love, but certainly the process of his love. They want him to treat them different. They want Him to somehow uh, withhold from them the the realities of living in this broken flesh. They want somehow uh, to be shielded away from the sorrow and heartache of life. And how often do we in a sort of shallow, superficial Christianity look at God with the same accusatory spirit and attitude? Hey, listen, I don't know why we would think that just because we got born again that life can't touch us. God never said that. Christ never said that. That's so antithetical to to the concept of New Testament Christianity. Uh, New Testament Christianity is not about saying, hey, if you sign up for God's baseball team, then nothing bad will ever happen to you. Nobody ever said that was true. If they did, they sure enough didn't get it out of the Bible. I've always been fascinated, you know, when you think about the way that the Word of God was written and, and the order in which the Word of God was recorded for us. And uh, It's often been said, and I tend to agree with this, this makes sense to me that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. That doesn't mean the things that happened in Job happened before everything else in the record of the Word of God. I mean, Genesis chapter 1-1 is going to be hard to be in the beginning, right? But Moses recorded the books of Genesis. And it's often been said, and I think this is reasonable and rational, that had the law been given at the time that the book of Job was pinned down, it would have been impossible to have that sweeping of a discussion about righteousness, suffering, heartache, sorrow, all these things, and not invoke the law. Surely it would have been mentioned. And so it's likely that the first book that was ever recorded, that was ever penned down of divine, inerrant Scripture, was the book of Job. Now stop and think about that for just a moment. The very first book that God ever had pinned down in this world, it wasn't about salvation. I guess y'all ain't never read the book of Job. Is that what that means? Y'all just looking at me. It wasn't about salvation. It wasn't about separation. I believe in separation. I believe we all be different. Hey, come out from among them and be separate. Say, Lord, I'll be a father unto you. Touch not the unclean thing. But it wasn't about separation. It wasn't about standards. I believe in standards. Everybody's got standards. Uh if if your standards are stricter than someone else's standards, you are a legalist. That's the idea, right? That's all, all you have to do to be a legalist, say your your standards are stricter than mine. Hey, everybody's got standards. Uh less and less so as we go, but everybody's hey, there's even standards down at the Walmart. You put on your nice pajamas when you go to the Walmart. Everybody everybody's got standards. But the first book of the Bible wasn't about standards. I'm a dispensationalist. Man, we, on and on we could go. Hey, let me just cut to the chase of it. The very first book that the Holy Ghost ever pinned down was about suffering. It was about a righteous man that suffered in a way that perceptibly to the people around him would have seemed unjust and unfair. And then it was about his friends, quote unquote, friends dog-piling on him and telling him how everything must be wrong in his life and he's nothing but just low-down dirty dog and liar. He deserves this and, and twice as much of it because he must be a hypocrite. He must be all these things. Because you know, the truth of the matter is this, even people that love the Lord have heartache and sorrow in their life sometimes. They invoked His love. Lord, You love us. You say You do. But if this is love, I wouldn't want to see Your wrath. Lord, how could You allow this to happen? In our life, there's a word of criticism that takes place. Now, let me remind you that there is no word that is sent ahead to Mary and Martha and Lazarus in this portion of our text. In fact, it does not end with any any word being given. And to our knowledge, there was no comfort that was allotted to them in that moment. But the Lord does, almost like the book of Job, pull back the veil and let you and I see some things that ought to be a blessing to us. When the Lord hears this news, verse number 4, this is what he said. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now in the book of Job, there's a heavenly conversation that happens that the sorrowful sufferer does not get to hear. In the book of John, there's a heavenly conversation that happens that the sorrowful sufferer does not get to hear. wonder what kind of heavenly conversations are taking place around your heartaches and your sorrow. You might not ever get to hear him this side of glory. But we find here that when the Lord hears this, He responds with a word of confidence. He doesn't start shaking and trembling. doesn't start popping nerve pills and trying to figure out how to work out some kind of problem. He doesn't pick up the phone and start trying to call folks and rally the troops and, and, and circle the wagons instead. When He hears that, He makes a bold statement. He says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. I notice he responds with this word of confidence. Let me say this. You may be confused, but he is confident. You may not understand, but he is not disturbed. He knows what he's doing. And there's nothing you or I experience that dislodge him from his providence and his throne. What do we see in this word of confidence? Two things. Number one, I just want you to notice this, man. This blessed my heart. When Jesus heard that, I'm going to read that again. When Jesus heard that. You know what that tells me? News got to Jesus. In that day, that was not a guaranteed thing. But think about the spiritual implications of it. He heard it. Can I say in this word of confidence, there's two things encourage me tonight. Number one is this, their cry was discerned. The heavenly ears of the Lord Jesus heard the message of their tragedy. Hey, listen, I'm glad we have not in high priests which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain, not that we may request, that we may obtain grace and mercy in time of need. He hears us. You may not know He's heard you, but He hears you. One of the great truths of the book of Job is this, that God's sitting up in glory watching the whole thing unfold. He never takes his eye off of Job. No doubt the devil had blind spots. No doubt Job's friends didn't see everything that happened. No doubt Job's wife didn't fully understand. There was never a moment that Job was outside of the vision of God. God saw him the whole time. You may not feel like your prayers are getting through. And chances are, if you're going through a trial, you probably don't feel that way. Even if you normally would feel that way, by nature and virtue of the trial you're going through, your flesh is probably buffeting you to make you think that you're not hearing, that God's not hearing your prayers. But you know, the Bible tells us that He hears and He answers our prayers. prayer. That he, his ear is always bent. His eye is always upon. We can cry unto Him and He'll hear and He'll answer. And in Lazarus' day, just as in your day and my day, their cry was discerned. But then notice the explanation He gives. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. I see that their crisis was divine. What do you mean, preacher? I mean this. There wasn't even a moment that Christ didn't have control over all of this. So much so that he is able to say definitively, this sickness is not unto death. Now, what does the Lord mean when he says that? In fact, Lazarus did die. The testimony of the Lord Jesus himself. He says plainly, Lazarus is dead. i tell you this. Hey, listen, we might reach places that if it was left up to us, that'd be the end of things. But it ain't left up to us. It's left up to an all-powerful God. Say, did Lazarus go to death? Yeah, he not only went to it, he went through it. he come out the other side of it. He was raised incorruptible. So the Lord knew something about it that they could not have possibly known. And by the way, what the Lord knew about it was not shared with them at that moment because at that moment, they did not need to know it. Let me tell you a very uncomfortable truth about God. He typically is only going to tell you what you need to know and when you need to know it. He's under no obligation to reveal to you every detail of His plan because you ain't running His plan. He's running His plan. And sometimes part of faith is having to be willing to say, now Lord, I don't know what you're about to do. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I trust you that you're faithful. He says, man, it's not unto death, but it is unto something. There's a reason for it, he says. It's for the glory of God. And you say, preacher, how is that? Well, we're preaching on it tonight. I'd say that glorifies God. Hey, listen, all all throughout, ever since John pinned down this record, preachers and Christians have been gaining comfort and help and strength and truth and illumination from this passage. God's gotten a lot of glory out of it. Not only that, he says that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. There was something proven this day in a way that had never been proven before. That he could reach beyond the door of the tomb to a man four days dead and with the power of his word, call him to come back and to step forth. Things were shown and proven about the Lord Jesus through this that could not have been shown or proven any other way. Let me tell you something that's hard to hear sometimes. There are things you can only learn about God by going through what you're going through. If there was an easier way, God would take you that way. But if he's not, it's because there's some things that you can only learn through that. I see there's a word of confidence here and then finally, and I'm done. I like verse 5. I don't have a lot to say about it. i got a couple things to say. I like verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and last. He say, now, preacher, why why is that interesting? Well, because when we go back a little further, what we find is is Mary and Martha saying in, in verse number three, saying, behold, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. They're saying, Lord, you love us. They could have been wrong. But when we come down to verse number five, we find the authoritative testimony and witness of none less than the Holy Ghost himself. And you know what he says? He said, oh, yes. Yeah, Jesus sure enough loved them. What a word of comfort we find here. Notice two things here. Number one, I like how it begins. Ain't no word in your King James Bible there by accident. Look at verse 5. Now. I like that. Don't you like that, Ken? Now. Not then he loved them. Not one day he'll love them. Not well he loved them before when everything was going well. But now, even now at the moment of suffering, now Jesus loved Martha. And her sister and Lazarus. Notice two things here. One, notice his love was still present. You know, God is an immutable God. What that means is he is unchangeable. He is the Lord God. He changes not. If he loved you before, he loves you now. You may not like the way that love is manifest in your life at this moment. You may wish it was done in a different way. But you couldn't change God if you tried. Don't think that that pitching a fit and shaking your fist at him is going to make him love you any less. Because the truth is, he knows you a lot better than you know you. He knows what you've done, what you will do. He knows what you would do, put in the right circumstances. He knew all that when he paid the price for you on Calvary. He saw you at your worst moment. He didn't come because you were so righteous you needed a Savior. He came because you were so rotten that you needed a Savior. He knew exactly who and what you were. He saved you anyway. If he loved you like that and loved you when you were like that, then why would you think, just because things got a little hairy in your life, that God somehow has quit loving you? This word of comfort reminds us that his love was still present. Still present. He hadn't given up on but Then notice this too. His love was still persistent. Not he still loved them in that moment, but what he was doing in their life was an expression of love and he was going to continue to go on loving them even in the future. There was never a moment he quit loving them. Uh, When things were good, he loved them. When things were bad, he loved them. And this is simple tonight, man. I understand that. This is simple. Listen, when things is good, he loves you. When things is bad, he loves you. When you you can make sense out of him, he loves you. When you can't make any sense out of him, he loves you. The sooner you nail this thing down in your heart, that no matter what happens in my life, I'm not going to question his love. I may not understand it, but I always know that he only and ever has done things in my life because and through and by his love for me. And as such, I'm not going to question it. You say, oh preacher, when things is going good, hey listen, uh, but things always aren't going to be going good. You're going to have things happen in your life that you can't understand. You're going to have things in your life you can't explain to others who want to understand. You say, preacher, what do I do in that moment? Well, Here's what we find in our text. We find God did not tell Mary and Martha what he was doing, told other people what he was doing. He didn't tell them what he was doing. You know what was enough? He knew that they believed, at least still at this point, that they believed that he loved them. And he said, that's enough for them. That's enough. If they know that, then they'll make it through. There's a lot of things you think you need to know, but there's one main thing that you really do need to know. You need to know no matter what, he loves you. He's not quit now. He's not going to quit later. You can trust in His love. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want you to mind the Lord in this altar call. I I don't even know how to give an altar call to that. Other than just to say, if you have those moments that you doubt His love, we all do. Why don't you come down and just ask the Lord to give you encouragement, courage in those days, those moments. Maybe you've done like some have done, and, and unjustly accused and criticized. Lord, you don't really love him. Won't you come ask His forgiveness for that, and ask Him to give you the faith, and the comfort, and the confidence to trust Him even when things look the worst? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.